0: So, have you ever heard pastors or other Christians talk about having a relationship with God? Heard that phrase around churches—a relationship with God. Maybe you've heard something like, "Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship." Maybe you've heard that, seen it on, on the car in front of you at the stoplight, or maybe it's something like this: you've heard, "Your relationship with God is the most important relationship you can have." Something like that. See, like so, sayings like this are—they are they're inspirational and they have some truth in them, um, but they might leave you with a big question. What's a relationship with God? Like, come on, that, that's one of those things like Christians say all the time, but like, do we really know what that means? If you had to put a definition on it, how would you describe that idea of a relationship with God? Well, for me, it started that that understanding grew over time. It started when I was 16. You see, I didn't grow up Christian. I accepted Christ. And so here's, you can imagine, to help you imagine a little 16-year-old Greg, here's a picture, okay? Um, and so I accepted Christ. Yes, that really was me. And in case you're wondering why I'm not wearing a shirt, that was my water polo picture. Um, either that or all of California, we just walk, Southern Cal, we just walk around without shirts on. That's just how we roll. So, so imagine little 16-year-old Greg, um, a brand new Christian. I had probably gone to church just a handful of times in my entire life. I go to a Bible study. God moves in my heart. I decide I want to become a Christian. I pray that night, and my life and my eternity is transformed. But I didn't know how to be a Christian. I didn't grow up with Christian around, around me. So I had to learn. And so here are a few of the things that I learned from the church, and it was a great youth group. I am indebted to that youth group for helping shape me. But here are a few things that I learned. First, you needed to go to church. So what is a Christian? Well, you need to go to church. That, was, that seemed to be important. Okay. Another thing is I needed a Bible. I didn't have a Bible. My, my mom had like this old, crusty King James one that was like cracking at the seams. But I, I needed a Bible. So I got the NIV study Bible. A great one. I highly recommend it. I still use it to this, to this day. Um, I have it at the app version on my tablet now. Uh, so if, if you're in the market, if you'd like something to study the Word, I highly recommend the NIV Study Bible. It is excellent. I've been using it for as long as my Christian life, and it's great. So that's one thing I needed. I needed a Bible. Another thing, I, eh, bless you, another thing that I realized was I needed to learn about God. And I had to learn about Jesus because I didn't know anything about either of those people. So I needed to learn. So I started taking notes during sermons. Um, I started attending a Bible study during the week. And I started to learn. And then I started to check out my NIV study Bible and learn some stuff. So for me, that was what little 16-year-old Greg did to try to figure out this question of, what's a relationship with God? And then, you know, over time, my understanding developed. It matured a little bit. Uh, It refined to, to what you see before you now. So what about you? How do you view Christianity? How do you see, if you're a Christian, how do you see your own faith? If you're not a Christian and you're here kind of checking this thing out called faith, how, how do you how would you describe other Christians that you know? So there are a few different ways we can look at Christianity. Here are a few. Okay, let me see if any of these connect with you. So first is Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. You know, as long as I'm not clubbing, drinking, or smoking, and as long as I am Tithing and reading the Bible and being nice to people. Okay, Maybe you've got your list of do's and don'ts. Maybe that's how you see faith. Okay? Or maybe Christianity is going to church. I see this a lot, with, especially with people who are trying to re- reconnect with God after not being around church and, um, for a number of years, that church seems to be what you do. And that is awesome, and that is important. Remember, it was the first thing I learned as a young 16-year-old. Um, and that is great, but often I'll notice it kind of plateaus there. I'm like, well, I'm going to church. I guess that means I'm good. I guess that means I'm Christian. Okay? Or how about this? That Christianity is kind of, you kind of see it like a club. You go when you want, you skip when you don't, but you never really feel all that guilty because you got the membership card. Okay, you're in, you go enough to still be considered a member and you're good. Maybe that's kind of how you see church. Or maybe, maybe you picked this up from your, from your parents, from, from pastors earlier in your life, that church is obligation. These are those of you who live, uh, live with shoulds. I should go to church. I should have quiet times. I should tithe. I should, should, should. And, and your life is all about, is driven, your faith is driven by I should. Okay. Or maybe for some of you, Christianity's fire insurance. Like you're not sure if there's a hell, but if there is, I want to make sure I'm not gonna be there. So let's go to church enough that I got the insurance covered, that I'm not gonna go someplace I don't want to go. Okay? So maybe it's fire insurance. Okay. So any of these, I mean any of these kind of connect with you? Because let's let's be honest here. I think we all have a little bit of at least one of these in us. For me, I think my faith can kind of turn behavioral. Um, and so I think I can lean sometimes toward that list of do's and don'ts. So what about you? What's, how, how do you, on your good days or your bad days, how do you view Christianity? Well, notice with all of these things that I just described, none of them carry this idea of a relationship with God. So none of those help us define. So we're left with the same question What is a relationship with God? And that's kind of the million dollar question for today. Now there are a lot of answers, there are a lot of aspects. So we're going to look at one aspect of this question, one aspect of this idea of a relationship, relationship with God. Okay? And to do this, this is going to be the framework for this new series called Boundless, talking about God's relentless love. And to do this through this series, the next four weeks, we're going to look at a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. It, it's a small book. You, you, in fact, if you're flipping through, you might even just miss it. You, you, you look on, it on your app and you have no idea what H-O-S means anyway. Okay? But it's, so it's this little book in the Old Testament, and it was written... Um, it's about this prophet and, and why this book, this prophet named Hosea. So why this book? Okay. That There are a couple reasons. First, this book of Hosea paints an incredible picture of God's relentless love for his people. It is, it is amazing when we read it, and we'll read passages over the next few weeks, where you see how God pursues and loves his people. And then second, it gives us an amazing metaphor to answer what does it mean to have a relationship with God. There's a metaphor that this book uses that, that we only see in little parts elsewhere in Scripture. But in this book, it's all over the place. And so that's, we're going to talk about that metaphor a bit today. And then you'll hear about it the next few weeks as well. So today, I want to give you a high-level overview of the book of Hosea. We're gonna talk about the whole book and then the next three weeks, we'll take a few selected passages, some of the stories out of this book to help us understand and capture the, the bigger picture story of it. So today, this is high level, big picture. By the end of today, I want you to be able to have a pretty decent idea of what this whole book was all about. So, I wanna give you four key things to understanding the book of Hosea. Okay, so four th- key things. Here they are. First, the book is about the life and writings of the prophet Hosea. Now, prophets were selected by God to speak God's words to God's people. And often they spoke God's words to kings or to the everyday people. And so that's what prophets were. And we find them all throughout the Old Testament. And then we, we even in the New Testament we, we read about the gift of prophecy. It's the same thing. It's speaking God's words, often verbatim. Okay, so that's the first thing. Now this book Hosea, it's also part of what's called the Minor Prophets, okay? and that's kind of a weird name because you think like they're all prophets under eighteen. No, that's not true. Or they're all just like short prophets, or they're unimportant prophets. Nah. Okay? The name just came, to by be, came around because these books are shorter than the major prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of those big books. These are just small books. It doesn't mean they're unimportant books. It doesn't mean they're unimportant prophets. But, but this is a part of the group that's commonly called the minor prophets. Okay? And also, he may have written the book, he may not have. It, it, it's likely that it was compiled by somebody else. Kind of imagine Hosea's writings and teachings, and then somebody else compiled them all. Okay, so that's likely how the book came to be. Uh, but it's about the life and the teachings of this prophet named Hosea. Okay, second big thing you need to understand is it occurred, the stories that we're going to read about, occurred somewhere between 750 and 700 B.C. And that's really important because there was a critical event that happened during that time period. In 722 B.C., the northern country of, of Israel, there was Israel and there was Judah. The northern country of Israel was taken over by the Assyrians. They were conquered. And it was, it was pretty sad. And the, the Israelites, the northern kingdom people, were taken into captivity, taken into slavery and the country was lost. And that, that, that event points to a significant moment in this book that we're going to hear about the next couple weeks. Okay? So that's the first, or that's number two. Number three, Number three is its major themes are Israel's judgment, repentance, and restoration. These are the themes of pretty much every one of the prophet books. Every book written by a prophet has those themes in them. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Is Israel's judgment, repentance, and restoration. You see, Israel had turned away from God. They were worshiping other gods. They were bowing down to idols. They were ignoring their God, Yahweh God of the Old Testament. They were were ignoring Him. Um, Doing things doing abominable, horrible things in God's eyes. And so God punished them. That's part of why the nation of Israel was taken over. That was God's judgment against the people, His own people. And it was heartbreaking. And so, so, that's, so God offered judgment, but He always offers restoration, hope and restoration. In fact, our name, River Life Church, comes out of a passage of hope and restoration in the book of Ezekiel. It's one of the prophet books as well. So God was constantly wanting to remind them that he has not given up. God's judgment does not mean God's exclusion. Fourth, the fourth thing about here is Hosea's life became what, what's called a prophetic metaphor for Israel. Now, what does that mean? That God commanded Hosea to live out some things, to, to live out certain actions and decisions that were designed to be symbolic for the nation of Israel. That's what, that's, it's, it's a symbolic metaphor, and it was God speaking. Okay, so, so what do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. Okay, here I got... An, uh, Normal towel here. And if I said, God told me this morning as I was washing my face to take my face towel and rip it, because God's heart is ripped in two when you turn away from Him and when you disobey Him. And this is what happens to God's heart. So see what I did there? That is a prophetic metaphor, it's a real life thing that God used. To communicate an idea and what's interesting about this book is Hosea actually has to live out a whole metaphor to communicate to God and we're gonna hear about that in just a little bit so those are the basics those are the basics now to help us get an overview of the book I want to turn to some of my favorite people on the internet for Bible videos this is a group called the Bible Project I've shown some of those videos in service here. If you've never heard of, of this team, I highly recommend it. They, they are, without a doubt, the best Christian videos I have ever seen in my entire life. Yes, even better than VeggieTales. It's true. so they're just amazing. So today we're actually going to watch one of them because they have a great video on the book of Hosea. So it's about seven and a half minutes long. So, so it's a little long, which means you can sit back and enjoy and, and sit back and, and absorb. And this gives you the picture of the whole book of, of how the book of Hosea is organized and some of the other major themes. And then I'll be back up in a few minutes. The
1: book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married. But they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her to pay off her debts to her lovers and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel, and he thinks about doing so, but instead. He says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why. It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel, and then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He he mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family has been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery. Remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul, who led the people into sin and disaster. Remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying, some things in this family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people and that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him but the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father taking advantage of his generosity. And so in this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. One moment, he's angry. And naturally, he says he's going to bring severe consequences. But the next moment, he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me. All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about. Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God. But he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God's saying, if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to repair the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart so that... God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about.
0: So if that was helpful, if you like that, we actually have that same drawing as a little mini poster out in the lobby for you. Or if that was too small and it was just all a blur, okay, then go get your eyes checked and grab one of these posters. We've got them out at the info table. Um, And then you can look at all the fine detail. And we'll be talking about this for the next three weeks. So go grab one of these guys. So you you have an idea? You have this? Because... This this idea of, of the book of Hosea and one of the major metaphors that helps us answer, remember our original question, what's a relationship with God? And the primary metaphor through the book of Hosea is one of marriage. Is that a relationship with God, being one of God's people is being married to God. And I think, imagine, imagine all of the ways we look at Christianity. Is that one of them? Is that one of them? Because, you see, the picture this paints, and we're going to talk about more next week and the following week, is, is God's command to have Hosea marry Gomer. And then Gomer's unfaithfulness that she turned away from Hosea And Hosea pursued her and was commanded by God to take her back. Isn't Isn't that kind of the story of us? We turn away. We rebel. We disobey. We go our own way from God. And he pursues us. And he buys us back. Because this isn't just something you do on Sundays. That being a Christian is marriage to God. So when you hear that phrase, relationship with God, that's the way to think about it. As being married to God. And what does all that entail? So is, do you have that in your mind? for those who are Christian out there, is that how you think about your faith? And for those who aren't, and you're exploring this idea of Christianity, is that what you see with the people around you? Or is it more that, that we see Christianity as a list of do's and don'ts? It's a club. It's an obligation. It's simply going to church. All of those things we talked about earlier. And if so, if that's that's how you kind of get stuck into thinking about faith, you're missing something amazing. You're missing being married to this faithful, loving, relentlessly loving God. Now... One of the great parts about being a pastor, there, there are a few things. I love baptisms. That's why last week was so much fun for me. But I also love weddings. And we're coming up into wedding season now. And, and I've, I, I'm doing a few weddings this summer, which I'm looking forward to because I always enjoy them. Um, but there's a part of weddings that I think captures the idea of marriage better than anything else. And that's the vows. Vows. I love, to, I love to watch wedding vows. And I know like the majority of folks will write their own vows, which I think can, can sometimes be amazing, sometimes a little so-so, a, li- a, little, a little light, I think, for vows. But I am a fan of the traditional vows. And I often encourage couples to incorporate some of these ideas of the traditional set of vows into their own vows. The thing I, that I, I tell couples is... is Instead of kind of making a good joke, like, like, I promise to bring you hot Cheetos when you're watching the football game, something like that, it it always gets a good laugh. But it's a terrible vow. Because if you're 90-year-old, if you're 90, and you're still eating hot Cheetos and watching football, then you need to get a life, okay? But vows, some of these traditional vows can last. They can apply just as well, whether you're 23 or 93. And that's part of why I love them. And so I wanted to share with you a traditional set of vows, and you've probably heard variations of this at a wedding, because this paints a great picture of what marriage is. I promise to love, honor, and cherish, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, until death do us part. Now, that's, that's awesome. Those are amazing wedding vows. But have you ever thought of those for your faith? Have you ever thought of this marriage to God and that these would be Christian, being a Christian vows? So to help you picture this, to help you picture what being married to God means, I've reworked those traditional vows a little bit. Do you promise to love, honor, and cherish God alone? For better or for worse, you'll follow him. For richer or poorer, you'll trust him. In sickness and in health, you'll praise him. Forsaking all others who try to steal my heart away until death unites you with him in heaven. Think about that, if that's what it meant to be a Christian. And that's the metaphor that the book of Hosea talks about. We are married to God, and we make vows to God. And it's, it's, it's a little heartbreaking when I see it on the outside, and, and maybe you're even feeling it, that there are times that for you who are Christian out there, there are times where You're not really living up to these vows. In sickness and in health. Sure, you'll praise Him in health, but when you start getting sick, you start asking the God, where are you? God, why am I not healed? God, how could you do this to me? In richer for poorer? God, I'll give to you, and I'll trust you with my finances in richer. But in poorer, all of a sudden, money starts getting scarce, and you start getting scared and you start holding on to your money. You're less generous with others, with God. Forsaking all others. How many times have your, has your heart been torn away by something other than God? And uh, you kind of like Gomer turn away from your first love. Because in this story, we're Gomer. Gomer. We're the unfaithful ones. God is Hosea. God is faithful. God is relentless. God is pursuing. God is the one with boundless love. So, as we answer that question, as you answer that question, what is a relationship with God? Think marriage, think vows. Think faithfulness, think commitment, think joy and happiness and tears and promise and exclusion, commitment to one and one alone, because that's what marriage is. And that's the gift that the book of Hosea gives us, is this picture of our life with God as being married in all of its joy and all of its heartache. So over the next few weeks, come on back. If you want to learn more about the relentless love of God, come on back next week. Come on back the week after and hear more about the story of Hosea and Gomer and how, how it's a picture for us of being married to God. Join me in prayer. God, that you are a relational God long before we ever existed. You lived in relationship as a Trinity, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of perfect union, perfect communion, perfect faithfulness. And then you created us to be in relationship with you, to be married to you, that you would be our God would be your people. God, thank you for, that you are a relationship-creating, relationship-building, relationship-pursuing God because we are not. Lord, so I, so I stand for River Life today, and I confess our unfaithfulness. I confess my unfaithfulness to you. God, and I thank you that you pursue us that you pursue me and you don't let us sit in our sin and our our disobedience. You don't abandon us. So thank you for your love, God. Thank you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.